Well, you can turn with in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. For our incarnation focus this year, we're going to look at the prologue to John uh, over the next four to five weeks. Uh, So verses 1 through 18, we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning, uh, but I will read to verse 18 to set the context. Please pray for me as we go through this. I'll begin reading at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful we can come and learn more about our Christ and learn more about you as you've revealed yourself in your word. But we do ask and pray that you would send forth your spirit as we come and consider these great mysteries concerning the Trinity and concerning the hypostatic union. We pray that as we contemplate, as we meditate, we pray that our hearts would be stirred, that we would recognize that you are God and we are man. So often uh, we fail to forget that we are made in your image and often we make you in ours. And so please forgive us for doing that. Please forgive us even as Christians, even as redeemed ones, so often we can have a low view of you. But we pray that that would change today. We pray that your spirit would work among us today, that we would have a greater sense of awe, a greater sense of reverence that the word is God, that Jesus is God, and yet he is fully man as well. Thank you for who he is. Thank you for what he is. Thank you that he is fully God and fully man in the one person. And we pray that you help us today, help me today as we come and consider these blessed truths. Help us to be careful with what is said. And we pray that you'd forgive us for all the times uh, we'll get it wrong. So thank you for your mercy and your grace. Uplift your people, strengthen your people, instill in us a greater sense of awe of your majesty and help us to honor and glorify you in all that we do. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, man does have this insatiable need to have everything explained to him. And while there are some things in this world that man can think through and have explained, there are other things that we simply must confess and believe. There are some things that are difficult. There are some things we cannot understand unless God tells us, unless God reveals it. 
And one of those things is the blessed mystery of the Trinity. We believe that God generally reveals in the created order. But as we see the created order, the one thing we can recognize is that there is God but we do not know that he is triune. That's why we need special revelation. That's why we need John to speak to us. That's why we need the word himself to speak to us that we might recognize that he who is the word is also God. We see today in verses one and two, John starts his gospel by talking about the word and his identity, talking about the word and who he is. And as we will see, this is an ineffable uh, mystery uh, that we see with respect to the Trinity and with respect to who the word is. We simply must confess and believe as God has revealed himself to us in his word. And that is the main purpose of John. As we saw in 1 John, John has a thesis in 1 John, and it's for believers that they might know that they have eternal life. Well, John in his gospel also gives us a thesis statement, and it's in John 20, verses 30 and 31. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That is his purpose. It is to call sinners to believe upon Christ, call sinners to look to the Lord and Savior, see who this one is, this one who is Jesus, this one who is man, is also the one who is God. And that's what we see in the prologue in verses 1 through 18. John introduces who Jesus is using this high and lofty language that we might believe and live in the one who is the word. And so, again, the focus for our incarnation uh, series this year is going to be verses 1 through 18. But we see the main verse in verse 14. And the word, he who is the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. It's called the miracle of miracles for a reason, that the one who is God, the one who is the creator, is the one who took on human flesh. Now, there is a problem that I think we can see implied in verses one and two, namely, this creation is passing away. And the reason this creation is passing away is because man in his sin has denied the creator. And so man has not honored God. Man has spat upon the goodness of God. And as a result, this creation is going to be burned up and a new creation is needed. We need someone to speak. We need someone to speak life. We need, we need namely one who is life itself to do that very thing. And so God the Father sends his word to reveal the way to God, to reveal the way man can have access with God and we have access to God uh, in this new creation that is going to be inaugurated by he who is the word. That's why it's important for us to know that the word is who he is and what he does. We need to know who our Christ is if we are to believe upon him rightly. We need to recognize that he is God and also recognize that he is man. And so in verses one and two, John just gloriously confesses and asserts that the word is God. He wants us to start there. He wants us to be impressed with the majesty of the one who is the word. He wants us to see and confess and recognize that this word is divine. This word is God. And so we'll look at this confession. We'll look at this assertion about who the word is under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the word who is with God in verse one. Then secondly, we'll see the word who is God 
in verses 1 and 2. So the word who is with God, and then we'll see the word who is God. And really, the first point will deal with his existence, that he is. And our second point will deal with his essence, what he is. And so let's first look at his existence, the word who is with God in verse 1. And notice John starts in a very high and lofty way. He's drawing our attention back to creation for a reason. In the beginning was the word. He's drawing our attention back to Genesis chapter 1, to the creation of this old creation, of this first creation, as he's going to contrast it with the new creation that this word is going to bring. He wants us to see that this one who is the word was not created. In the beginning, as we read in Genesis 1, God. That is, God is eternal. God is from everlasting to everlasting. We don't know what eternity means. We cannot comprehend that. We are bound by time, past, present, and future. But God simply is eternal. God is not bound by time. Everything is present before God most high because he is eternal. And so when we see that language in scripture in the beginning, so there's the beginning of time, the beginning of creation, but also could mean the source of creation, namely there is one who was who is, who was, and is to come, as the book of Revelation says, as John says in the book of Revelation. He wants us to see that this one who is the word is also the creator of all things. He's going to unpack that further in verses 3 through 5, which we will see next week. But notice the word was not created. In the beginning was the word. He always is and always has been. The word was in the beginning. The word was the one who created through him all things were made. He wants us to see how this one who is the word has an eternal existence. He is the eternal word. He is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. And for Jews reading this for the first time, they start to think. Well, there is in the beginning, and there's one who was the word, so creator. They start to think perhaps, so oh, the, the idea of him being in the beginning highlights perhaps his eternity. So they start to put perhaps two and two together. Who is this one? Who is this one who is these attributes? Who is this one who is creator? And who is this one who is eternal? And so he goes on to explain. He says, or I guess assert in the, or distinguish, in the beginning was the word. He is eternal. He is the creator of all things. He is the one who spoke it into be, or through whom it was spoken into be, and it was so. And so we are meant to be impressed by him. We're meant to recognize his majesty. We're meant to be, uh, approach him with reverence. In the beginning was the word who is the creator. But notice he continues to talk about this existence, this eternal existence. And notice he distinguishes between the Father and the Son. Notice we have the one who is eternal, and only God can be eternal. But we also have one who is the eternal person, or an eternal person. And the Word was with God. We see how the Word exists, how God exists, how God is perfect and blessed life in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Word is creator, the Word is eternal, yet he is distinguished from the Father. Nobody has an issue with the Father being God. Nobody had an issue with the Father being God. The Jews had no problem with the Father being God, but this one who is the Word 
Chrysostom says, why? Because the former was manifest to all. It is not, as, if not as father, at least as God, but the only begotten was not known. And therefore with reason, he did immediately from the very beginning, hasten to implant the knowledge of him in those who knew him not. As Jesus is going to come, as, he take, as the son takes on a human nature, as he engages in his ministry, he's going to assert that he is the I am. And the Jews are going to struggle with that very thing. It's going to be difficult for them. That's why it is something that must be believed. It is something that must be confessed. It is something that must be recognized that he who is the word, he who was with God is the one who is God. But we see John here is distinguishing between the persons, isn't he? We have the one who is God, the, uh, the father, but also the one who is the word. When we talk about what a divine person is, it's the divine essence subsisting in a relative property. If you don't understand that, that's the point. The divine essence subsisting in a relative property. We have to recognize that the Bible teaches there is one God, but yet we also have to recognize that attributes are ascribed to the Father, to the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet being one God. So we, that's why we confess and believe there's one God and three persons. Not one person and three persons, not one God and one, God, uh, one person, but one God and three persons. And so it's hard for us to fathom that. It's hard for us to understand that because we're not meant to understand it. We simply confess. We have to be careful, though, we don't say things that are heretical. We have to be careful we don't say that there are three gods because the Bible is clear there is one God and we also see that there are three persons. When we ask, the, we can speak in the language of what, what is the son, what is the father, they are God, but then we talk about who with respect to the person, especially with the person that is in view, namely the person in view here is the son as he's distinguished from the father. I think our confession of faith does a great job, as do the creeds, but our confession of faith is a great paragraph. Uh, you know, taking, t you know, 1,600 years of uh, church history and doctrine and, and you know, uh, uh, condensing it down to this blessed paragraph. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. How does God exist? He exists, eternally exists in three persons. The Father, the Word, or the Son, and Holy Spirit of one substance power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. We do not divide our God. We do not divide the Trinity in nature and being, but we distinguish by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Namely, when we speak of the Father, what is his relative property? He is Father. When we speak of the Son, what is his relative property? He is Son. And when we speak of the Spirit, what is his relative property? He is Spirit. Or we could say paternity, uh, filiation, or sonship, and procession. So paternity, sonship, and procession, but they're in no way distinguished by being. They're in no way distinguished by rank. It is not as though that the word is less than the father or the spirit is less than the father and the son. They are co-equal and co-eternal. And we see this, this one who is the word existed, has existed forever, has existed for eternity with God. And only God can be the one who exists 
forever. And so we're talking about the word. What is he? He is God eternally begotten. Who is the father? He is God unbegotten and God who begets. And so John does communicate that. And again, 2000 years of church history has sought to take what is said in light of the heresies that arise and to define or at least make sure we confess the one true triune God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. I know all this language is difficult for us on a Sunday morning, but part of that is we are not used to it. Part of that is we haven't heard it as much as we ought. Relative property, personal relate, all that sort of language. That just needs to be vocab. We just start drilling into our minds. We just remember it. We just learn it. We just confess uh, the one true God. And the point of it is, the point of using the language, the point of speaking in this way, is to follow along with what John is trying to do. And the application really is for us to be instilled with a sense of awe. The purpose of what John is trying to do here is for us to recognize that this one is the high and lofty one, this sense of awe for the one who is the word, to recognize that he truly is God. He is eternally God, and it is the one who is eternal God who takes on a human flesh without relinquishing anything. He does not stop being God when the son takes on a human nature or human nature. He does not stop being the one who rules the world. He does not. He is the one who rules all things and even the infant still wails. And that is a difficult thing for us to fathom, but it's the one who the one divine person who takes on that human nature that we might have life with God. And all again, all this is meant to cause us to worship cause us to confess, cause us to believe upon his name and recognize who he is. Why? What have pagans done? What do you and I sometimes do? We have a low view of God. And what John is trying to instill in us is a high view of God. And if we have a low view of God, that's going to be reflected in the life that we live. Do we recognize who he is? Do we recognize that he is perfection itself? Do we recognize that he is infinite? You and I are finite. We're all here. We're all contained in this building right now. God is everywhere present. Do we recognize his majesty? And do we recognize the fact that he who is eternal, he who is infinite, he who is high and lofty is pleased to reveal himself to us? See, brethren, the whole purpose of life is to what? It is to glorify God. It is to honor him. It is to worship him. And if you have a low view of God, you're going to have a very low view of worship. If we aren't impressed with the creator, we're not going to be impressed with the things that he says. What's the problem with the Pharisees? They don't think he's the creator. They don't think he's God. They don't think he's the Messiah. They deny that this one who is the son, they deny that this Jesus is the son of God and the Messiah. And what's going to happen? They're going to die in their trespasses and sins. And the reason we need a savior, the reason we need a new creation is because man has not honored God. Man has made God in his image. That's why pagans make gods that look like men. They have gods that are hungry, gods that are thirsty, gods that are weak, gods that are strong. Thankfully, we have the one who is omnipotent. Thankfully, we have the one who remains omnipotent, who also is like us in every way, yet without sin in his human nature. Sometimes the application when it comes to preaching, when it comes to the word of God, just needs to be, here is your God. 
Believe upon him, worship him, be impressed with him. Because again, if you're not, why would you listen to a God who isn't that impressive to you? But what John is trying to highlight is just how impressive he truly is. And impressive doesn't really describe him, does it? Impressive doesn't really indicate, it, doesn't, uh, it won't even uh, come close to recognizing who this one triune God is. And so we are meant to worship, and all this is meant to stir our hearts to worship, to worship our creator, to worship the, our redeemer, to worship the word who became flesh and dwelt among us to save us from our sins. So we are thankful that he is, that he exists, that he is eternal, and that he is the one who was with God. But we're also thankful that he truly is God. So that was the word who is with God. And now we'll see the word who is God in verses 1 and 2. The word who is God, verses 1 and 2. And so we see John driving to this point, uh, the beginning, this creator, this one who is distinct from but eternally exists with God, uh, with the Father, I should say. And then we see here he drives to the point, and the word was God. He is the one who is consubstantial with the Father. He is the one who is truly God. He creates. He is eternal. He is equal uh, with the Father. He is God. And again, this is a starting, a startling claim, but one that is absolutely crucial when we consider who Jesus is. And notice, Jesus isn't mentioned till verse 17. Again, John is doing that on purpose. Here's this one who is the word. Here's this one word who creates. Here's this one who is life and light. Here is John, but he's not the word or not life, not light. He's not these things until we get to verse 14. The word becomes flesh. And then finally, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the word. Jesus Christ is the high and lofty one. That is what John wants us to see as we go through this prologue. And so we've seen who he is. He is the word. He is the one who is with God. We see even in the prologue, he's eternally begotten of the father. Uh, he is the one who is eternally generated of the father. We talk about his procession as we distinguish between the father and the son. But we know what he is. He is God. And everything that is said in chapter 2 of our confession, paragraph 1, applies to the Father, applies to the Son, and applies to the Holy Spirit, whose subsistence is in and of himself. He does not need anything. Infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. We cannot comprehend God's essence because then we'd have to be God to comprehend his essence. That's why we need him to speak to us. That's why we need the one to declare him. That's why in 118 it says, no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time except the only begotten son. The only begotten son is the one who knows God and in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. How do we know the father? How do we know God? It is through the one who declares him. But the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, yet there's only one God. So everything that is said and applies to God is applied to the Word. He is immutable. He is immense. He is eternal. He is incomprehensible, so on and so forth. We have one of the clearest passages that teach us, teaches us that Jesus, the Word, truly is God. And again, the Word will take on a human flesh. The Word as we distinguish, not the Father who does this. 
the word takes on a human flesh, not the father, yet the father is God, the son is God, and the spirit is God, yet in the plan of redemption, it would be the one who is eternally begotten who would be the one who is sent, the one who takes on a human nature. If you didn't understand that, that's fine. Just say that over and over and over and over again. Just drill into your heads. You're never going to understand it, and that's perfectly okay, but we just have to recognize that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and in the order, not rank, in the order of the Trinity, we see it as the Son who takes on a human flesh. The Word takes that on. We see here the person, the Word, truly is God in his essence, and the Word was God. Now, there are some J-dubs out there. If you're ever thrown down with a J-W, Jehovah's Witness, when it comes to who Jesus is, they like to say with the Arians, there was a time when the Son was not. There was a time that he was the first created being, whereas John 1 is very clear that he, was, he is uncreated and he is the one who creates. And they like to go to John 1, 1. And it seems very clear because it is very clear. Sometimes the simplest answer is the right answer. And the word was God. They like to do some grammar and they like to go to the Greek and say, well, there's no article there. The word was a God is what they like to say. Two things. One, the context is very clear because when he says the word was with God, the article is there, the the is there when it typically shouldn't be grammatically. So contextually, that's very clear. And then another thing to highlight is the fact that in a certain grammatical formula that we see here, uh, that when God precedes the was, it, or the is, the be verb, uh, that it typically the, the, the article is dropped even though it is still definite. Sorry, that was a lot, wasn't it? But that's okay. Just say context. Context is very clear about he who is God. But there is some grammar there. It's very clear. And even theologically, there's not any other God out there. I mean, even, even with respect to the context, the Jews who had been reading uh, this perhaps would have recognized there is only one God, not two. There's not multiple gods. There is only one. Pagans believe in gods who are not real. And there is only one who can be God, and the word was and is God. There cannot be other gods. There's only one who is God. And all this is meant for us, again, to see that the one who tabernacles among us does remain God. Again, there is a view out there that teaches that when the Son took on a human flesh, they say he emptied himself of certain divine attributes, namely omniscience and namely omnipresence. We have to recognize, dear brethren, we have to speak of the nature. Does a nature change? Does the one who is immutable change? Not at all. And so that is another great mystery, isn't it? One God, three persons, and yet the one person, just the word, takes on a human nature but doesn't stop being God. He is the one who rules the world, and yet he is the one who is saving sinners as he has taken on that human flesh. In his human nature, he does not know everything. He is not omniscient, but in his divine nature, he is omniscient. He is everywhere present now in his divine nature, but he is not everywhere present in his human nature. And that's important when it comes to the Lord's Supper. You see, when we partake of Christ in his body, we are partaking of Christ where he is at the right hand of God the Father as we partake of his body and his blood. He cannot be everywhere present according to his uh, human nature. So all these things are important. One person, two natures, one God, three persons, 
And yet it is a miracle of miracles that this one tabernacles among his people. And again, he's meant to instill in us this sense of awe, recognizing his majesty. We must recognize the miracle of miracles that God would dwell with us in this way. We must praise God for what he does for us in the Son, taking on a human flesh, but then also shake our heads at the people who don't believe on it. And let's be honest, brethren, we were once those people who we would have shaken our heads at, right? I mean, you're reading the Gospel of John and the Pharisees are denying him. The Pharisees are attributing things uh, to him that are wicked. They are not believing upon his name and looking to him before Abraham was, I am, is what Jesus says. And the Pharisees take up stones to try and stone him and kill him. Why? Because they knew exactly what he was saying. They knew what he was asserting when he says that he is, I am, and they will not believe upon him. They will not believe upon the one who is God. They will not look to him, this one who is infinite and eternal, and this one who comes and tabernacles among his people. And it's so important. This is so important that we need to hear it twice. That's exactly what John does, doesn't he? Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. This one who is God was in the beginning with God. We need to hear it twice. We need to hear it again and again and again. We need to hear it. And John is, you know, the Lord in his infinite wisdom. You know, John uh, wasn't around when the Arians came and said there was a time when the sun was not, but yet verse two is combating that very thing. He was in the beginning with God. Morris says, there never was a time when the word was not. There never was a thing which did not depend on him for its, its very existence. Again, this is what led to the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Constantinopolitan, say that over seven times fast, creed uh, that highlights and helps us see and confess who Jesus is. And the Arians were saying there was a time when the sun was not, whereas John's very clear, there was, never was a time when the word was not. So he is God, he is the creator, he is not created. But notice he is with God. So there's, again, the distinguishing of the persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the word, not the Father, who's in view here, although distinguished from the Father. And this is contrary to other heresies that arise in history that say that there's only, they want to keep the unity. We recognize the triunity, but they want to just have one, one God and one person. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just three manifestations of God. That is heresy as well, whereas... John's very clear, was with God. He was in the beginning with God. Ryle says this verse contains an emphatic repetition of the second clause of the preceding verse. John anticipates the possible objection of some perverse mind that perhaps there was a time when Christ the Word was not a distinct person in the Trinity. In reply to this objection, he declares that the same Word who was eternal and was God was also from all eternity a person in the Godhead, distinct from God the Father, yet with him by a most in intimate uh, way. So we see very clear here, he is repeating it on purpose. He was in the beginning with God. So he's eternal, he is creator, he was with God, and he is and was God. Now, do you ever ask yourself, why did John use the word, word here? <laughs> 
Why didn't he say sun? He will go on to talk about light, but there perhaps are several reasons why. None of them are necessarily airtight, but what's very interesting is word referring to Jesus is only used in these verses uh, in John's gospel. It's used later on in Revelation 19.13 to describe the one who is the word. But I think the main thing the word communicates to us and for us is the mission. So we've talked already about the procession. I didn't use that language, but the one who is eternally begotten, who he is in himself. But then what does that mean when God operates in time and space? What will the Son do? Well, when the Son, who is the Word, comes, he is communicating something, isn't he? He is revealing something. What is his purpose? In him is the revelation of all the mystery. When you see the word mystery in Scripture, it's always referring to Christ always being referred to the fulfillment that is found in him. And the reason it's fulfilled and found in him is because he who is the word is the one who communicates and reveals. And we need this one who is eternally begotten to be the one who has been sent, the one who takes on a human nature. How do we know God after creation has been severed or the uh, uh, creation creator, that relationship has been severed, man and God has been severed. How then can we know this God? It is by the one who is the word. It's the effective working of God's word. We're going to look at Isaiah 55 tonight, where we'll see that God will send forth his word and his word is going to restore. His word is going to cause life. His word is going to take that which is dead and make it alive. Now, I think it's more of a conceptual illusion, but perhaps John, and we see the sending language used throughout John's gospel, and it is the word that is sent. The word goes forth and does not return void. He is the one who is sent to bring new life in a new creation. Here is the one we need. Again, don't miss all all those allusions back to the first creation, the words that were spoken, the light that was shining. And here is the one who is the word, who speaks. Here is the one who is the light, who shines. Here is the one we need. He is the one who shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. And he is the one who brings abundant life for undeserving people where we can come and buy without money, where we can come and have milk and water and never thirst again. It is because of this one, because of the word who reveals these things. Here is the way of salvation. Here is life with God. Believe upon Christ. Driving that point where John says in John 20, believe on his name and in believing in his name, you might have life. And if you're an unbeliever here today, that is John's purpose. Here is Christ. Here is Jesus. Here is the Son of God. Here is the one who takes on a human flesh to die for undeserving sinners. Believe upon him and you shall be saved. Believe upon him and you shall have life everlasting. And this identity of who he is, the word with God, was God, again, shapes the rest of the book. And if you miss this, you truly miss who Jesus is. If you miss this prologue, then the rest of it is going to perhaps not have as much significance as it would be if we read it in light of what we see in John 1. I think one writer does a good job of highlighting the differences between the Gospels and what John does versus what the other writers do. Not that they're bad, but just highlighting the differences. And he says, note the difference in what has been said between John and the other evangelists. 
how he began his gospel on a loftier plane than they. They announced Christ, the Son of God, born in time when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But John presents him existing from eternity. In the beginning was the word. They show him suddenly appearing among men. Now you, may, yeah, now you dismiss your servant, Lord, in peace according to your word because my eyes have seen your salvation. But John says that he always existed with the Father and the word was with God. The others show him as a man. They gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. But John says that he is God and the word was God. The others say he lives with men while living in Galilee, Jesus said to them. But John says that he has always been with the Father. He was in the beginning with God. This is the God that we know. This is the Christ that we know. This is the word that we know. This is the one who brings about a new creation. And as he speaks, we need to listen, don't we? As he preaches, as he speaks, as we hear him speak through his word, we need to listen to him. We need to be awake and attentive to what he has to say. We need to pinch our legs when we're getting sleepy. You know, the Puritans understood that there was this sort of, I guess, contract, this unspoken contract between the preacher and the people. The preacher will try to bring it as much as he can. But the people, barring, you know, illness, barring a late night that was not of your doing, uh, you just were not feeling well. But when we come, we're awake, we're attentive, our minds are active, our minds are listening, our minds are being expository as we pay attention. And brethren, perhaps to instill that in us, we need to be reminded again, here is the one who speaks. It is Christ, whom they have not heard. Uh, Romans chapter 10. When the word goes forth, Christ really does speak, and we need to listen. Regardless of how loud one's voice may be, regardless of the personality of the one who is speaking, Christ is the one who speaks through his word. Are we listening? Are we hearing him? Are we recognizing here is the one who is the word? Do we have a high and lofty view of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Now, Franciscus Junius has a great introductory to theology on true theology, but Matthew Henry recounts uh, when he was really instilled, uh, when Junius was instilled with this sense of awe. And he says, the learned Franciscus Junius in the account he gives of his own life tells how he was in his youth infected with loose notions in religion and by the grace of God was wonderfully recovered by reading accidentally these verses in a Bible which his father had designedly laid in his way. He says that he observes such divinity in the argument, such an authority and majesty in the style, that his flesh trembled. And he was struck with such amazement that for a whole day he scarcely knew where he was or what he did. And thence he dates the beginning of his being religious. Because we need to recognize here is the high and lofty one. And God used these verses to instill that in one whom we have benefited greatly from. And thankfully, we benefit greatly ultimately from the one who is the word taking on human flesh, that he, as Isaiah 57 says, who is the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, who dwells in the high and lofty place, who dwells in the holy place, with whom? He who has a broken spirit and a contrite heart and who thankfully melts our hearts and breaks our spirits that we might recognize who our God is, it is God who does that very thing. Brethren, you are meant to be impressed with who Jesus is. You're meant to be uh, recognize the majesty of this one who is the word, how we really see the miracle of miracles it is, that the one who is God, the word who is God, took on flesh 
and dwelt among us, the one who was God. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for who you are and what you've done, and we're thankful for your revelation to us in your word uh, with respect to who the Son is and the Son himself revealing uh, as the word, communicating to us where life and everlasting hope and peace comes from. And we pray that you'd forgive us for not having that sense of awe, for not having that reverence before you, not recognizing that you're the one who is infinite and eternal, at least doing so with our lips, but not doing so with our actions. And we're thankful that he who is the word is sufficient to forgive us even of these sins, and there is mercy and forgiveness in him. We ask and pray that you would help us, that you'd help us to be instilled with that majesty of who you are, the recognition of your majesty and glory and honor, that we would bless your holy name, that we would sing with the angels, that we would uh, have zeal for uh, your uh, worship uh, as we recognize who you are and what you've done. And we pray that you'd, again, forgive us and wash us afresh in the blood of Christ. We pray if there are any here today who do not know you, we pray that you would save them. We pray that you would melt their hearts. We pray that you would give them new hearts, that they might look and believe upon the word. They might believe upon the Son of God, and believing in his name, they would have life everlasting. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for that assurance. Thank you for the revelation that we have uh, from the one who is the word, the one who was in the beginning, uh, who was in the beginning, the one who was with God, and the one who is God. So help us now as we come and take partake of the Lord's Supper. Thank you that you do stoop to our nature. Thank you that Christ in his human nature is at your right hand. Thank you that we get to partake of him now by faith and help us now by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22 for our Lord's Supper portion. Changed my mind, sorry, Mark. <laughs> Mark chapter 14. I can do that. <laughs> Mark 14, verses 22 through 26. I'll read the verses and then I'll um, comment on them and then we'll come back when we actually do the partaking part. So, verses 22 through 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it. And gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, the reason I switched to Mark 14 is because each of the Gospels highlights something a little bit different or a little bit of a different <coughs> emphasis uh, when it comes to the institution of the Lord's Supper. And I do think Mark's emphasis is the sign and what it signifies. And thankfully, we can be encouraged that what we have here in the elements, in the bread and in the wine, are signs that signify that we really are partaking of Christ by faith, that we partake of his human body and drink of his human blood by faith. When I don't say magic words and they literally become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is wretched, that is wrong. But thankfully, the Lord stoops to our nature. He gives us this sign, this is my body. So when I look upon it and I partake of it, I'm partaking of Christ by faith. It's meant to be spiritual nourishment for the people of God to encourage us and strengthen us along our way. And so that's the emphasis of Mark. Here is the sign, the sign of his body, the sign of his blood. 
And then as far as what the Lord's Supper is, as I said, it's not transubstantiation. I don't say some magic words and the bread and the wine literally become the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is wrong because then his body would be everywhere present. And that is heretical. It's also not the Lutheran view, which teaches that Christ is in, with, and around the supper in his human body. Again, Christ cannot be everywhere present in his human, na human nature. We believe it's a memory, looking back to what Christ has done, but it's also more than a memory. It is meant to be spiritual nourishment along the way for the people of God. We partake of Christ by faith. All of these views are seeking to answer the question, where is Jesus how do I partake of him? And so we say he's at the right hand of God the Father. We partake of him by faith and by the Holy Spirit. So it's meant to nourish the people of God. It's meant also to be a future meal, to look ahead to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's meant to be a blessed means of grace for the people of God as we partake. So it is for the people of God. Uh, it is not for unbelievers. It's not a saving ordinance. It's not for the unrepentant. Uh, perhaps a good example is a member not in good standing or a man who has his father's wife, a serious sin one is not dealing with. Uh, those are in view, the unrepentant and unbelievers, but it is for believers. It is for believers who struggle. It's for believers who do battle sin and who need to be nourished and strengthened along the way. So for the sensitive soul out there that says, I sinned yesterday, I forgot to repent till this morning, repent and come and partake, it is for you. It's not meant to be a pat on the back for a good week. Uh, we're coming to partake of Christ by faith and by the Spirit, where he will strengthen us as we partake of the visible word. So it is a memorial meal for the people of God. As far as the elements, we have the bread, which signifies Christ's body, but it also signifies sustenance. And then we do have wine and grape juice, uh, which signifies Christ's blood shed for us. So wine, uh, sorry, wine and grape juice, and we have the bread as well. So with that, uh, one more thing I need to highlight with respect to who. Uh, one can eat and drink judgment. That is very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let a man examine himself, then so let him eat. So um, if you're an unbeliever again, please let the elements pass by. Please believe upon Christ. Uh, if you're unrepentant, repent and come and partake. But if you're a Christian, please come and partake of the supper. So with that, I'll have the brothers come and pass out the bread. Please meditate on Christ's body broken for you as Lucas plays through some tunes.
Verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's pray. Our great God, we are thankful that you stooped to our nature with this blessed Lord's Supper. Thank you for this sign that signifies Christ's body broken for us. Thank you that we get to partake of our Christ, and we get to partake of Christ by faith and by your Spirit. Thank you that he is currently seated at your right hand. Thank you that he is with us now by the Spirit, and we are with him now by the Spirit. So please uplift us to heaven by your spirit. Help us to partake of him now. Help us to be nourished now. Please bless this cup. Please strengthen us, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Let's partake together. With that, I'll have the brothers come up and pass out the wine and the grape juice. So wine outer ring, grape juice inner rings, wine outer ring, grape juice inner rings. Please meditate on Christ's blood shed for you.
verses 23 and 24. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Uh, And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for this cup that signifies Christ's blood shed for us. Thank you for the joy of knowing him. Thank you for the joy of having our sins covered and forgiven in him because of this precious blood. Thank you for this sign and what it signifies. Thank you again that we partake of Christ by faith and by your spirit, where Christ is at your right hand. And so we pray that you would nourish us and strengthen us as pilgrims along the way. We do long to eat and drink of it with you in the new heavens and new earth. And we long for that day to come. But we're thankful that you have given this, given this to us now as we await the fullness of your kingdom. So strengthen us, bless us. We pray that you give us joy, we pray. Help us and be with us now by your spirit. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's partake together. Well, as long as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, and we do say, Lord, come quickly. Well, we'll close this morning's service by singing hymn 175, as we always do. Hymn 175, we'll stand and sing together. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. We'll, we'll close with a brief time meditation. The panel's finished. You are dismissed. Mm-hmm.